everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Three, two, one. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Jessica Henry, who, among other things, is the author of the book, Smoke But No Fire. Welcome to our show, Jessica. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. So I thought we could start a little bit. Just uh, tell us a bit about your background and how, how it is that you got started as the public defender and what's happened since. Sure. So I actually am a little unusual because I went to law school with the sole purpose of being a public defender. I had stumbled on the whole world of criminal law back in college, and I worked at a bar across the street from the courthouse where all the defense lawyers hung out. And their stories seemed so cool to me that I thought, that's what I want to do when I grow up. Um, And then, of course, when I got to college and I learned all about the injustices in our system, I thought, I really want to stand up for people who may not otherwise have a voice or may not have quality representation. So I went into law school with the intention of being a public defender, and I really never wavered from that. Um, In fact, I know you're out in California. I did a summer internship at the San Francisco Public Defender's Office in their Capital Appeals Unit um, a few years ago. (laughs) And so when I graduated law school, I, in fact, became a public defender. Um, I worked for two holistic public defender offices, which is, you know, just a a slightly different approach uh, that looks at the client as more than just a single individual case, but really looks at um, sort of what maybe brought them into the system and what are the factors about them that can help us maybe represent them better. So I worked in the South Bronx at the Bronx Defenders, and I also worked uh, doing trial work, and I also worked as an appellate lawyer for many years at the Office of the Appellate Defender. Um, and then I had an opportunity to become a college professor, and that is what I've been doing since 2005. I'm a full professor in the Department of Justice Studies at Montclair State University, um, and that's what I've been doing since then. So how did you come across the topic um, which became the subject of your book? Well, I teach a course, undergraduate course on wrongful convictions, and I'm I'm always learning and reading and researching and writing and doing. Um, and so I was playing around on the National Registry of Exonerations database, which for me is a lot of fun. <laughs> other people may like to do other things. I like to hang out in the data. Um, and I realized, you know, I, I clicked on something and I realized that no crime wrongful convictions were showing up as about a third of all the cases in the registry. And I thought that can't possibly be right. 
um, because no one's ever really talking about this idea that innocent people are wrongly convicted, not just of crimes they didn't commit, but of crimes that never happened. I thought that can't be right. So I actually followed up with the folks over at the registry and said like, hey, can you check? And of course it's correct. And I knew I needed to know more um, because if I'm someone who really is in the weeds with this stuff and I didn't realize just how prevalent no crime wrongful convictions were, I thought maybe there was something um, that needed to be explored a little bit more deeply. And so that's the genesis of the book. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is it is interesting because, I, and and probably one of the reasons this caught my attention uh, was I actually got into this uh, with several cases from that, that were no crime um, wrongful convictions. In one case, um, it was a sexual assault that never occurred. In another case, um, it was, you know, a question maybe more classic of, you know, whether it was consensual versus non-consensual. Um, but in both cases, it's pretty clear that it's a wrongful conviction, even though they're still in custody. Um, and then I know there's, um, you know, been a lot of uh, publicity on, on things like, you know, arson uh, and, and whether these are arson fires versus, uh, you know, um, accidentally set. And then the other big area, I, you know, I would assume is things like Shaken Baby where, you know, they're mistaking and we actually covered a case um, where the guy was acquitted um, and uh, and it, it seemed like a classic shaken baby uh, one, but, you know, they learned enough about, um, you know, what was going on with the wrongful convictions in the shaken baby case that they were actually able to acquit the guy at trial, um, which is actually somewhat unusual. Yeah, I mean, you know, and in California, I think one of the the one famous no crime case that did involve um, a sexual assault allegation is Brian Banks, right? I mean, there's a documentary about his case right. um, where he was, you know, sort of told to plead guilty to a crime that never occurred. Um, and, you know, now that's sort of gotten a lot of press and play. But yeah, it happens. So those are the the instances that you sort of referred to. Those are some of the big cases. But there are plenty of other. So there's there's the one thing that you sort of referenced, right, where there's a false accusation made. Um, and then the police kind of don't do a proper investigation or just are unable to discern the fact from the fiction. Um, and a person can be convicted wrongly of something that never happened. Um, there's also, as you referenced, that misclassification. So um, an event occurs, a fire breaks out, and somebody, instead of doing an open investigation, goes into the crime, the fire scene, rather, with the mindset that it's a crime scene, and then they sort of maximize all the evidence that points to the fact that it could have been arson and intentional, and they minimize or disregard anything that suggests otherwise. Um, so those are two sources of no crime wrongful convictions, but there are other ways these things happen too. Um, it can be an instance, again, in California, you guys are very familiar with the Rampart scandal down in um, LA, but you know, where the police literally manufacture crimes that didn't occur either for their own personal gain or to meet departmental quotas or just because they can. Um, so that's another source of wrongful convictions. And then there's a whole slew of cases where people 
are sort of profiled, right, because uh, they're Black or they're Latino or because they're poor or some combination of those factors. Um, and the police use a, a field test and the field test comes back positive for drugs. And so they're promptly arrested. Um, and the prosecution will say like, hey, you better take a plea because if you don't, this plea is off the table and you're facing a lot more time. And so innocent people will plead guilty based solely on these field tests. And then of course, if a lab result ever comes back, it's often proven to not have been um, drugs at all. And we see that coming out, for instance, in Harris County, there's been 50, 60 cases, maybe more now, um, where innocent people pled guilty to drug crimes where there was actually no drugs at all. So there's a number of triggers, if you will, that can create, that can create this no crime wrongful conviction scenario. And nobody in the system ever pauses to say like, hey, let's go back to the very beginning and consider this idea that a crime was committed in the first place. Everyone is so trained to assume that once an event occurs or once somebody's been arrested, there must have been something wrong. And so they go forward um, looking for that evidence and sort of not taking into account the larger story. So tell us the story that maybe we haven't heard before of one of these cases. In, in which kind of case? Um, there's oh, no, there's so many. You know, I'll, I'll take on the, the shaken baby case only because there's a, a case down in Texas. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Mississippi. It could have been Texas. It's always Texas. No, that's Tanya from Texas. <laughs> um, but there's a woman named Sabrina Butler. Um, and I tell her story a lot. And she, I actually had the honor and the uh, privilege of having her come and speak to my class this semester um, via Zoom, which was really powerful. But Sabrina Butler, um, to me, kind of exemplifies how these cases happen and how they, um, who they target and the, the impact. So Sabrina Butler um, was a young Black woman down in Mississippi. She was 17 and she had a baby. And um, the baby inexplicably stopped breathing. Mother's worst nightmare. And she ran to a neighbor to get help. And she, the neighbor attempted to do CPR. The neighbor had no idea what she was doing. Sabrina Butler herself attempted to give this baby CPR and she didn't really know what she was doing. And they raced to the hospital um, and the hospital personnel also worked on this baby um, in an attempt to revive him. And he was not, um, they were not able to do that and he died. And instead of treating her, as the grieving mother that she was, they saw the bruised abdomen, of course, from the CPR, um, and assumed the worst. And um, they interrogated her for hours and hours. Imagine the grief of losing your child. And instead of having anyone sympathetic speaking to you, having the police grilling you, interrogating you um, about what did you do to your child. And she eventually made some statements that they viewed as a confession. And she was arrested and she spent, and eventually she was charged with murder, convicted and sentenced to die. She spent five years on Mississippi's death row um, before she was eventually exonerated because of course she had never harmed her baby. Um, what happened was he had a, an undiagnosed illness that no one had recognized previously. And when he stopped breathing, he died. One of the high profile death penalty cases is um, that we were covering uh, earlier last year uh, was a similar uh, a baby death case that um, 
you know, all the evidence points to it not being uh, a homicide, and yet they can't get this woman off death row. Um, So, I I mean, these are hard cases, right? And I think part of the reason that they're hard is that there is no crime. And so you can't, it, it makes it harder to actually undo, right? Well, you know, you've got in your, in the classic wrongful conviction scenario where, you know, you have been convicted of a crime committed by someone else, there's always that possibility, however slim, that you can find the person who actually committed the crime and you can prove your own innocence. But in a no crime case, there is no crime. There is no other person because nothing ever actually happens that was criminal. And so you're really trying to deconstruct a narrative based on the absence of anything rather than the affirmative sort of, look what I found. I found the DNA that excludes me. Well, that's not going to be so helpful in a case where there was no crime. So what do you find as kind of the, and and it sounds like it's so disparate that this question may be complicated, but what are the common threads that lead um, to these wrongful convictions? You know, so it's as, listen, the criminal justice system, the criminal legal system in general is complex. And it's, it's, the answer to that is multifaceted. Um, And so some of it obviously is where you have a vulnerable defendant, a defendant who is a member of a marginalized group, a defendant who perhaps has a prior criminal record, someone who um, can't defend themselves easily. They're they're much more um, vulnerable to these types of convictions. But it's not just that, of course. Um, You've got cognitive biases that affect every single step of the criminal legal system. So whether it's the police wrongly assuming that a crime was occurred, that a crime occurred and misclassifying an event as a crime, or whether it's just them, you know, bringing in their own biases um, when they're investigating so that they're, you know, they're proving this crime happened. Um, So there's, there's all, there's the sort of the police, there's the cognitive bias piece up front. Um, there's also, as we discussed, which is kind of a separate way this all goes down, is the police sort of running unchecked, um, the power to manufacture allegations. Um, but then it also, it's the whole system, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's all about race. It's all about poverty. Um, most folks, not all folks, and I want to be clear, it's not all folks, but most folks who get pulled into the system are poor and are people of color or people who, for a variety of reasons, are susceptible to being charged. And then, of course, they get provided with a lawyer and the range and the quality of that lawyering will matter, you know, matters tremendously, but varies tremendously. Um, And so when you're poor, you get what you get. Um, And sometimes what you get is really bad. Um, And then they're the prosecutors and prosecutors have a culture of viewing, doing justice as getting convictions. And so they don't pause and say, did the police do this right? What really happened here? They just do whatever they can to build their case um, as best they can to convict a person. Um, And when you are innocent and you're facing these charges, that confluence of events can be incredibly difficult to overcome, which is why so many innocent people wind up pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit and, in fact, to crimes that never happened. 
And I, I've had this conversation a number of times uh, when I've had people on here talking about wrongful convictions, but it just uh, doesn't seem like the system has any kind of fail-safe mechanism to correct these problems. You know, one of the things I always say is, and it's fascinating to me, right? Because I, I did both trial work and appellate work. So I appreciate both the, the bombasticness and the, the, you know, getting in the trenches in the trial, but also the, the, the real simmering in the legal theory. Um, but what, I've, what I often have been struck by is that the law requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but not beyond all doubt, not to 100%. And so built into our legal system and into our legal standard is this possibility of error, right? Beyond a reasonable doubt is not to all, you know, we're not ever asking for 100% certainty. And yet, once a conviction is final, the system goes into overdrive to preserve the conviction. So even though we have a, we've created this mechanism that by definition allows for at least some error, we do not have a, a structure in place that is really conducive to revealing those errors. Um, if anything, people, you know, judges and appellate courts bend over backwards to preserve convictions. There's a real emphasis on finality over anything else. Yeah, and that's one thing we, we talked about with Daniel Medwood on, on his uh, recent book is that once you're stuck, you really are stuck. Stuck. And, you know, there's so, when you think about just the sheer number of people, there's, what, 2.2 million people incarcerated right now. Uh, and that does not include all the folks who are walking around with criminal convictions um, who are out, who are on parole or who are on probation or who have completed their time and are no longer on supervision. So when you think of the literally millions of people who have been touched by the criminal legal system who have wrongful conviction, have, have, have a conviction, one percent, one percent of those folks were wrongly convicted. Like again, beyond a reasonable doubt. Let's let's give it one percent. We're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are wrongly convicted. And we're not even talking about the misdemeanor system, which I spent some time talking about in the book. Um, but there's so many people who get pulled into misdemeanor court for crimes they did not commit, crimes that did not happen. And they just plead guilty because they do not have the bandwidth to go back to court. Misdemeanor court, if you've never been, <laughs> is, you know, it is a grueling process. And if you've got to go back multiple times, you're missing days of work. You don't have child care. You um, may have other obligations you just can't miss. It's, it seems in the moment easier to plead guilty. And we, we have no idea the scope of wrongful convictions in the context of misdemeanor. No misdemeanors, no idea, because there's so few resources to go back and relitigate those cases, right? Where anyone who does innocence work is sort of working to get the person off death row or to get somebody out of prison, not someone who has been stigmatized with a misdemeanor conviction. Yeah, uh, that's a really good point. Um, you know, and, and we see these estimates, you know, anywhere from 2% to 10%. I tend to think it's higher um, because, you know, there's so many people that, you know, I think are facing like a misdemeanor charge and they're just like, eh, you know, why am I gonna spend all this time and energy for something that's not gonna incarcerate me? Um, and 
The other thing that really scares me is, and, and I don't think enough people talk about it. Um, so there's been all this literature that's come out, you know, in the last couple of years on, um, you know, the trial penalty and, 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 and pleading. Um, but I really think as somebody who watches a lot of jury trials that the jury system doesn't work very well either, um, that you have a, a high percentage of cases that are kind of no-brainers and 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 so okay yeah this guy did this and yeah okay fine um but when you get to the hard cases that you know the real questionable hey there were no eyewitnesses there's no physical evidence case i think they're getting that wrong it, uh, it, it's probably coin flip percentage yeah I, I, you know and when you think about it the, the easy cases, right? The easy cases, either that there is just no evidence and the prosecution can't get together to pursue that conviction or the easy cases in the sense that it's so overwhelming, the evidence is so overwhelming. Those cases either get dismissed or get, I mean, the easy innocent cases get dismissed. The easy um, guilty cases are resolved by plea. So you're only going to trial for the most part, either in those super gray cases or in the case where there's no plea offer that's worth, you know, anybody's time. Um, and so the gray cases are the hard cases. And I actually like to think that the jury tends to get it right based on the quality of the evidence presented to them. So if the evidence that's presented to them is not well vetted, if it's based on junk science that comes across as incredibly impressive, right? I mean, how many jurors um, love it when an FBI agent comes in and talks about, you know, comparing fingerprints or, you know, they used to compare the, the bullet and that they would compare these lead bullet. And it's all junk science. We know that now, um, but we didn't then, right? right? And so jurors believe it. How, how could they not believe it when an expert comes in and talks about, the triad of symptoms that you need to have when you're talking about a shaken baby case, jurors believe them because they don't have the expertise or the knowledge to critique them. And that's where good lawyering comes in. Um, or the quality of the lawyering, the, the, the knowledge of the lawyer when they're talking about those cases. Um, so yeah, jurors often get it wrong, but I like to think for the most part, they get it wrong because of the evidence presented to them. Um, I'm a little more cynical. Well, listen, there are clearly, there are some jury, the jury selection process is really flawed. Um, you still have prosecutors, particularly in cases where there are black defendants, excluding black and brown people from jury service um, in ways that are clearly improper and unconstitutional. That obviously affects both the composition and the discourse in the jury, uh, the composition of the jury and the discourse in the jury, you know, room behind closed doors. Um, so there are, there are certainly biases at play that the prosecution will try to, you know, encourage um, during their jury selection. Of course, the defense lawyers are looking for folks who are gonna be sympathetic to their um, clients, but it often seems to work um, better for the prosecution. Uh, in terms uh, it's of it's amazing how that happens, right? Yeah, it is. It is amazing and upsetting. Um, and yeah, the trial penalty is also a real thing, right? I mean, people are really rolling the dice when they go to trial, which is why so few people 
go to trial. When we talk about the trial penalty, you know, we're talking about this idea that somebody is presented with a plea of five years, but if they go to trial, they might get a life sentence. Like how those two things can be in the same conversation about the same case is somewhat mind boggling. Like, is it worth five years or is it worth a life sentence? Like what harm was done and what are we trying to punish? Are we trying to punish for the harm or are we trying to punish for somebody actually exercising their constitutional trial rights? So from your perspective, um, and we've talked about some of the uh, injustices, inequities in the criminal legal system, how, how do the cases that you've looked at illuminate deeper problems in the system? You know, when you, and I break this out in, in my book sort of step by step, but, you know, there is at every single point in the system something that um, can be addressed or needs to be addressed if we want, if we truly want a more fair and more equitable system. So whether it is bail reform, and you might say, well, what does bail reform have anything to do with wrongful convictions? Well, it has lots to do with it, because if you've been arrested and you can't make bail, even modest amounts of bail, and someone comes in with a plea offer that's going to get you out, you're going to take the plea offer. Um, if you are out because there was no bail set or bail was reasonable relative to the charge, then you will have the luxury of being outside, living your life, working to prove your innocence, working to help build your case um, in a way that folks who are incarcerated can't and don't. Um, so whether it's something as upfront as bail reform, or even, even you know, and if you're in, uh, once you've been arrested, there's all kinds of things, right? Whether it's um, false confessions. So, you know, working to improve how the police interrogate um, folks they arrest, making sure that it's from, from the moment of questioning till the end, till the bitter end, that the entire um, session is recorded. Um, that really matters. And making sure that the recording is not just of the suspect, but of everybody in the room, because otherwise you're not capturing the flavor and the context of what may ultimately induce an innocent person to say something just to get them to stop questioning them. Um, or, you know, and again, I'm sure you've spoken with lots of folks who've told you about eyewitness identification and the procedures that can induce somebody to wrongly identify a person who didn't commit a crime. Um, so there are, there are sort of police reforms that can take place. There's bail reforms that can take place. Jury selection, uh, I mean, there, there are better um, ways perhaps to fund public defenders and fund legal defense for the poor so that poor people who are, you know, far overrepresented in terms of who gets pulled into our criminal legal system in the first place, so that poor people actually get the quality of representation that they should be entitled to. Um, that's a huge investment. We're very willing to fund law enforcement and we're very willing to fund prosecutor offices and we're not so willing to fund the poor and to provide them with quality representation. That matters. So at every step of, of the structure of the case, those things matter. We don't, we don't step up and let poor people get experts the way we need to, particularly in cases like a shaken baby case or a homicide. You know, there, there are cases where somebody commits suicide and it's mislabeled a homicide and people go to prison for that. 
if you had proper experts coming to the stand to talk about well, what a suicide could look like and how suicides don't typically have notes or, or whatever, um, that would go a long way to helping avoid these types of no crime cases. And then of course, um, there's the whole analysis of prosecutors and how they do what they do and why they do it and can they do it differently and with an emphasis that really is on justice and, and getting appropriate outcomes, even if that means that a person doesn't go to prison. You know, we need to, I, I, I'm sure you've heard, um, you heard, of, I'm sure your listeners have heard about the case, you know, where the six-year-old shot his school teacher. And what I was so stunned by was how quickly people were like, oh, we need to lock him up. And yes, this thing happened, but why do we need to assign criminal blame for all things? Um, why should a six-year-old be criminally prosecuted? There are lots of questions. And why did this child have a gun um, and access to a gun? And why did he think it was appropriate to fire it at somebody? But he's six. And the answers aren't probably going to make sense. And they certainly shouldn't be leading to a criminal allegation. But we're so quick to assign blame. If a baby dies, somebody must have done something criminal. When in reality, sometimes just tragic things happen and sometimes babies die. And sometimes people do bad things, but many times they don't. Yeah, boy, there's a lot to unpack. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I, I realized that was a very long and circuitous answer, but there's just a lot. No, it's a great answer. Um, you know, I mean, I guess one thing, um, really struck me. I've been reading uh, Saul Casson's book, Duped. Um, really good book. Recommend people read it. Um, I thought I knew a lot about, you know, false confessions, and I learned a lot. Um, I'm only halfway through the book, and I've learned a lot. Um, and so, I mean, um, but the way he lays it out, you can really see why these people falsely confess to crimes that they didn't commit and it's like you know it's, it's one thing um and I'm struggling to formulate this correctly but um you know it's one thing when we were kind of naive to um the flaws in the system but I feel like you know really over the last quarter century we know problems in this system. We know that there's problems with forensic science. We know that uh, eyewitnesses are not as reliable as we used to think. We know that confessions can be coerced and, and that we can actually create false memories from these interrogations. Um, and, and so it seems like the science now has kind of caught up to to the system, but the system hasn't caught up to the science. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, the law, I, the law always lags. It always lags. And there's an unwillingness to go backwards retrospectively and say, we did this wrong, right? Because it would, it would require so many actors to admit that they got it wrong. Um, but we have gotten it wrong so many times, and we have created a system that is incredibly unfair and unjust, even, mind you, for the guilty. Um, even for the guilty, we have structures in place that are just not particularly fair. Um, 
But what's great about wrongful convictions, not great, nothing is great about wrongful convictions, but what's great about the subject of wrongful convictions is I think we can all agree. You can be the, you can be the harshest, most punitive person when it comes to, you know, you did the crime, you do the time. Um, and yet you would still agree that an innocent person shouldn't do any time. And so when you look at the factors that contribute to wrongful convictions, well, they're the factors that illuminate what's wrong with our system in general. Um, and, you know, this, there's a larger conversation going on in the nation about do we need to keep locking people up for all of these different kinds of offenses? Is there a different way to respond to crime? Um, and it's an important conversation because we are so out of step with the rest of the world. Yeah, and the other thing that you brought up is the importance of having a strong indigent defense system. Um, so I'll, I'll use the example of a case that I covered 10 years ago now, geez, um, which was a shaken baby case that I mentioned earlier. The reason that they were able to get them off is, you know, the public defender's office in this county where I live um, has the resources to be able to hire uh, experts. Um, and so they were able to get um, a strong forensic doctor who was able to counter the narrative from the prosecutor's forensic doctor. Um, and, and that made all the difference because instead of, oh, you know, uh, this doctor says it, now you got this doctor versus this doctor and it's a fair fight. Um, you know, and then I recall reading about uh, Anthony Ray Hinton in Alabama, uh, who, you know, spent 37 years on death row. And, um, you know, the interesting thing about that guy's case is that Alabama doesn't have a public defender system. They, they, uh, they hired a, an attorney who didn't even do um, criminal law um, to represent him. And the first time he meets with him, the guy goes, um, I'm only getting paid a thousand dollars and I eat a thousand dollars for lunch. Um, and one of the reasons that this guy, um, eventually got exonerated was that, um, you know, the, uh, uh, his attorney only got $500 to hire a forensic person. Apparently, uh, the judge would have granted him more, but he never asked for it. And so he hires this one-eye bullet uh, analysis guy who got blown up on the stand. I mean, it's it's comical, except it's somebody's life. Um, and but this is this is the reality that so many people face is that they're not being taken care of by um, competent professionals. That's right. I mean, four out of five people are too poor to hire their own lawyer that are brought to the system. And, you know, that raises all, also all kinds of questions about how we are, how we define crime, right? Because it's certainly not 80% of poor people. I mean, 80% of people who commit crime are poor, but that's who gets pulled into the system. And then, yeah, it's very much catch catch can. I mean, caseloads can be enormous that prevent good quality lawyers from doing their job properly. And then to your point, some jurisdictions just don't care about having lawyers who do their jobs properly because the assumption is that if a person was arrested, then they must be guilty. And if they're guilty of committing a crime, we don't really care about how their rights are being enforced. 
because they deserve whatever they get. And of course, we know that at many points in the system, there are opportunities to be like, you got the wrong person, or this didn't happen the way you think it did. Um, you really shouldn't be making those assumptions because they can have such dire consequences. All right, so we're just about out of time. Um, maybe some final thoughts. What, what, what should people take away from this conversation in your view? What they should really take away from this conversation and from the many wonderful conversations that you have on your show is, um, you know, wrongful convictions are the tip, no crime wrongful convictions are the tip of a very broken ice and, and melting <laughs> iceberg. Um, we have a problem. We have a problem with our criminal legal system. It is fundamentally not working. Um, and when we look at the reasons for no crime wrongful convictions, when we look at the reasons for wrongful convictions in general, um, it tells a story of a system that is racist, that targets the poor, um, and that is not working to effectively protect the innocent. Um, and we should not be comfortable with that. We should be incredibly uncomfortable. And we should do what we can to improve our criminal legal system and think carefully about why we do what we do. Great. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on here and sharing uh, your wonderful book. The book is called Smoke But No Fire. Strongly recommend people read it if they haven't. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's Smoke But No Fire, Convicting the Innocent of Crimes That Never Happened. And it's actually published by University of California Press. There we go. So another California reason to, yeah, to exactly. take a look. Well, this has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next week for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.